Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Roland McCready. Uh, Dr. McCready is the Director of Research of the HeartMath Research Center at the HeartMath Institute. As a psychophysiologist, Dr. McCready's research interests include the physiology of emotion, heart-brain communication, and the global interconnectivity between people and the Earth's energetic systems. Findings from this research have been applied to the development of tools and technology to optimize individual and organizational health, performance, and quality of life. Dr. McCready has acted as a principal investigator in numerous studies examining the effects of emotions on heart-brain interactions in autonomic, cardiovascular, hormonal, and immune system function and outcome studies to determine the benefits of positive emotion-focused interventions and heart rhythm coherence feedback in diverse organizational, educational, and various clinical populations. He's been featured in a number of documentary films, such as I Am, The Truth, The Joy of Socks Move, The Power of the Heart, Solar Revolution, and The Living Matrix, among many others. The website that you can go to to find out more about Dr. McCready's work is heartmath.org. And we're gonna be talking about moving past stress management, building and sustaining resilience capacity. I really enjoyed this conversation and my um, mind went in so many different places and how to bring this work um, more to my patients and to all of you who are listening. And I hope that you're inspired as well. So enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone. We have a real treat today with Dr. Roland McCready, and we're going to talk about heart math and all, all things heart coherence today. So welcome, Dr. McCready. It's a really an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks, Christine. It's uh, a really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Yeah, well, a lot of my patients are on to heart math. They've either heard of it, experienced it, or have an interest or curiosity in it. So for the person who's new to heart math, can you just give us an overview of what heart math is? Well, that's always been a challenging thing for any of us here to do because we're in this so many different kind of aspects. But, but basically, heart math, uh, probably relevant for our discussion, is a set of tools, techniques, processes, technologies even that support it that really help people shift into an optimal state we call heart coherence, which helps really get the heart and brain in sync. And that uh, optimal state, um, these techniques lead you into, uh, there's over 400 independent studies now showing that that is a really good thing to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it helps the body's natural regenerative processes, uh, balances the hormonal system, um, quietens the activity in our nervous system. But more importantly, even I think it aligns us with who we really are at a much deeper level. So I'm, I'm really saying we have the science here to support the idea that the heart isn't just a pump, that it's really an access to a, a deeper part of who we really are, uh, what some people might call their higher self or spirit. Uh, here at HeartMath, we just call it our larger self to take any kind of religious uh, or new age context out of it because we mean this quite literally and uh, have the, the science to back up that, that statement as well. So it really helps people navigate life with more grace and ease. Um, Mm-hmm. Who doesn't need more of that these days? And I think, you know, what I love about heart math and what I continue to want to do in my own work, you know, I did a summit last year called the Body Electric, and my whole goal around that was to really give people the conversation and the science around seemingly esoteric ideas that people might not understand or just think, oh, energy medicine or kind of, you know, not understand that this is really rooted in science. So I, I think it's awesome how you guys intersect science with the the spiritual aspects of our our own being. And so some people might, the new term might be this idea of coherence. And so can you walk us through, what do you mean by coherence? Sure. Uh, it's a great place to start. Yeah. In fact, we spent several years with my scientific advisory board, which is a lot of names that people would recognize. So it was very fortunate to attract a lot of uh, mentors and back in the, the 90s. Anyway, and so what are we going to call this, right? It was our incoherence we came up with. And the reason for that, if we start at the first definition, most dictionaries, or probably all of them, of what coherence is, it's usually in the context of somebody's, the quality of somebody's speech or writing, you say. So hopefully I'm putting my words together in a way here that convey a coherent meaning. Right? It's a concept that makes sense. It's connected. And if I'd had too much to drink last night and I'm kind of uttering nonsense, I'm what? Incoherent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, in a way, it, it has similar meanings in physics, which is how I mean it. So coherence is almost always used in the context of complex systems. 
And so it's coherence is a big deal in, in science these days on, on almost any branch of science, whether we're talking about the universe, a really big system, which is amazingly coherently organized, right? You know, how the earth goes around the sun and the moon around it, all that. It's very coherent. Mm-hmm. But uh, it implies to be a coherent system. It's embedded within that. What it means is that all the parts have to be somehow connected and communicating with each other to be able to coordinate and operate together harmoniously. And so it implies stability in a coherent system, that it's stable over time. And in a coherent system, it's very energy efficient. So we can apply that, those same concepts and measures of coherence in our body. How, how well are all the parts working together? The immune system, the hormonal system, nervous system, heart and brain, right? In fact, we were, I think the first to use it in that context, the word physiological coherence, um, didn't certainly didn't invert the, invert the term, but we can also use coherence in another one of our areas of research in social sciences, social coherence. How well are the relationships and the harmonious order amongst a team or a family or a community? Right? And then uh, we, which I, I know we won't go into today, but we also use it in the context of our global coherence work. Mm-hmm. So we founded the global coherence. Some, some of your listeners might know the global coherence initiative, GCI, where we're looking at the coherence between humanity itself, all of us, if you can think of us as all little cells in a much bigger organism and in the earth itself and how we're actually interconnected with the, uh, the magnetic rhythms and frequencies in a very real measurable way with earth itself. So we look at personal coherence, social coherence and, and global coherence and how they all interrelate, you know, kind of all nested within one another. So that was hopefully not too too complicated. Oh, yeah, no, no, I love it. And I, you know, after the body electric and a lot of the um, the research that I've done, I've kind of dumbed it down when I explain it to patients so that health is coherence. I feel that that when we are healthy and well, we are coherent. And so I think that was a beautiful explanation. And you know, obviously, it applies outside of our uh, physical body as well. So with with your research and with you know how heart math really works, how do we even assess or measure the state of coherence within a physical body? Well, as it turns out, it's quite easy to do. And the way we do it is we look at the activity of the heart. And as it turns out, the heart is is integrated and involved in multiple systems. A lot of people just think of the heart as this kind of mechanical pump, but we know now it's much more than that. It's a hormonal gland. It secretes hormones, oxytocin, uh, all the catecholamines, dopamine, norepinephrine, all these things are all literally manufactured and secreted by the heart. It's the primary source of rhythm in the body. It really sets the pace, even for the brain. So you could kind of look at it as the conductor of a, of a very complex or- orchestra of all the different systems that have to work together. Heart really sets that rhythm. So the and the fact that the heart and brain are so interconnected, in fact, the neural structures between the heart and brain connect the heart and brain more so than any other systems in the body. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, just while we're on that topic, just to mention this, the heart actually sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. Wow. Now that sounds like some new discovery, right? Mm-hmm. This has been known since the late 1800s. This is basic anatomy, uh, just been forgotten and had a lot of rediscovery. And the, the quality of those signals that the heart sending to the brain profoundly affect brain functions, cognitive functions, or neural pathways from the heart directly to every major brain center. And the quality of these neural signals profoundly affects how well we can think, our decision-making, our ability to self-regulate, which is so key uh, in today's world, and but also our emotional experience. So hopefully most of our listeners out there, when they fell in love with their, their spouse or Oh, whatever their, their significant other didn't. I bet they didn't say, I love you with all my brain. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. Uh, we intuitively know this and feel this in the heart for a reason. Uh, I'm getting a little bit off track there, but. Oh, no, it's all great. So mm-hmm. as it turns out, the, the heart rhythm is the most reflective of how we feel. Uh, so this is some of our work in the early 90s. We were able to, to the first, I think, to show, ever show that specific emotional states are reflected in the heart rhythm, the pattern of the heart rhythm. In other words, anxiety looks different than anger. And, and, but especially when we are feeling things like 
love, appreciation, kindness, compassion, you know, the list, right, that we associate with the heart naturally anyway. But, you know, we can walk out the door in the morning and it's just one of those days. We're actually having one here, you know, blue skies and the perfect temperature and just, ah, oh, what a beautiful day. We have that kind of feeling of appreciation or gratitude. Even, even we don't call it that. That's what we're feeling. Our heart rhythm shifts into a very different pattern. And that's a pattern that we now call coherence, um, which reflects physiologically coherence. Because all to see that nice, it's a sine wave, rhythmic living pattern, looking pattern. For that pattern to emerge, all of the systems in the body that I was mentioning earlier, especially between the heart and brain, have to be working together harmoniously. Mm. And then when we get triggered and we feel things maybe like anxiety or impatience or frustration, especially anger, the heart rhythm becomes very chaotic looking. It's literally showing that all these systems within the body are out of sync and using a lot more energy and basically a state of disharmony. And, and we can call that autonomic dysregulation. Uh, a lot of terms we can use to that, but it's really what we're seeing reflected in the body really starts up here, mm -hmm. right? In these higher level brain systems, the amygdala and so on, which are really driving the activity in, in the autonomic system. Now, sorry, I rambled on there. That's mm -hmm. No, no. The, I mean, I love everything you're sharing. And, you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, my patients, you know, have a lot of what we would call neurological symptoms. And there's so much conversations right around the gut and the brain. And while that, of course, is relevant, you know, as you're talking, you know, I'm just like, I've got to start with the heart with everyone. And, you know, I think that's still, you know, underestimated and underutilized. And so, so no, that's a great description of coherence. And I love how, you know, we're wired that the, the positive emotions that we all know that feel good in the body or change our state also have a huge physical and physiological effect like gratitude, right? So, I, you know, I study science and then I love people who inspire me, um, like Lynn McTaggart and Joe Dispenza and Tony Robbins. And, you know, all these people have a lot of gratitude practices in their, you know, in their ways of inspiring people to lead a healthy life. And so it just takes this whole other, you know, framework when we look at what gratitude does to the, uh, not only the heart, but to our physical body. So Dr. McCready, so we have this concept of coherence. We know that we want to be in a state of coherence. We know that we can measure coherence and that that translates to health. So how does heart math, you know, interact with someone who's incoherent? So a lot of my patients have anxiety, depression, insomnia, you know, all of these like really incoherent emotions and states. So how do we start shifting somebody? Yeah, the, I think, um, boy, this is a, we could talk about this for probably hours. Yeah. Kind of the key here, I think, to start with is self-regulation. Just understanding that that's, um, you know, and if we really look at most health issues and even our societal problems or the conflicts we have in families and work teams, it ultimately boils down, if you really look under the hood, to failures of our capacity to self-regulate. Mm. And I don't mean that from a judgmental or blaming perspective, because most people just haven't been taught how. You know, sometimes we discover it ourselves through, you know, the hard knocks of life. You know, but, um, but that's really the, the key to our growth is, is our capacity to, to really stay composed when life's tough out there. And this is where what the emotions you're talking about are so key because really we have a greater degree to self-regulate our emotional diet than most people understand or have been led to believe. And in fact, regulating our emotional diet, and this is backed up by many studies as well, is far more important than what we eat. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. the impact it has. And I'm not, not saying it's not important to have a good nutrition and hydration. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. saying if we really understood the impact we're having on our body day to day, so when I'm talking about self-regulation, Christine, in this context, I'm, I'm really meaning in the moment self-regulation. So mm -hmm. kind of I, I, like, I like traffic exam examples because they are not obviously just about traffic. But mm -hmm. you know, if you're in a, driving down your car and the traffic lights are all green, you're hitting them just right, and you pull up to where you're going, there's the perfect parking spot right in front of the store you're going to. It's easy to kind of be in the flow and self-regulated, right? But what happens when we hit the traffic jam? Mm -hmm. for most people, mm -hmm. right? We get a little irritated or maybe impatient or frustrated. I mean, some people just flat out lose it, right? Um, so that's a failure of self-regulation. 
if we really understood what those emotions are doing to our body. You just do that under the radar, right? Where there we are, getting hurry up, you know, all those going on. We're sitting in motion 1400, at least 1400 biochemical changes in our body that basically use and deplete energy. Mm-hmm. Certainly not going to make the traffic move any faster. Mm-hmm. All we've done is deplete ourselves. So, um, so I, we can say the literal traffic jams, but th- then equate that to all the things we go throughout a day. And, and so for so many people, things like the subtle anxieties and frustrations and impatience have become so familiar to the brain, we don't even recognize them anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? In yeah. fact, what's, what becomes familiar is what we experience as comfortable. And the, we, the way the brain works, we actually have to k- kind of keep creating those feelings internally to feel comfortable, as crazy as that sounds. But it's actually the way our bodies work and our brains work. So no wonder we feel so depleted at the end of the day. Or, and, and then over time, these biochemical changes uh, uh, set up the internal environment for higher inflammation and lowered immunity. So it's exactly what you're probably describing. You know, so for inflammatory type issues, then that leads to diabetes and heart disease and the metabolic syndrome and the list goes on. Uh, all really because of those unmanaged emotions. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You know, yeah, can, oh, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And um, do you think it's just, you know, our society doesn't honor and teach people this or how do people become so unable or not able to self-regulate? Um, you know, what are some of the factors there? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it is, is um, we aren't taught. Mm-hmm about our emotions, you know, suck it up mentality, you know, um, mm-hmm. these kinds of things that, uh, and I, I'm certainly not, maybe just to be clear, I'm not talking about suppressing emotions. And we, by the way, we don't use the term negative and positive here. We, we call them depleting emotions and renewing emotions. Mm, I like that. Because of the effect they have physiologically. And that's just a scientific fact. So I'm not judging or saying that, you know, you know maybe anger isn't appropriate sometimes. But mm-hmm. it still depletes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And everybody can relate to that. I mean, if you've had one of those good old anger blowups, <laughs> you know, we got triggered and we let them have it. You know, it might feel good in the moment, you know, the adrenaline and how powerful am I. But, you know, a few minutes later, there we are, huh, drained. And we, so we, we've all had that experience. Mm-hmm. So the heart math techniques are really about how do we become more intelligent about managing our energy. Uh, kind of aware of it and it really always has to start with self-awareness and you know what are we actually feeling you know kind of accepting and getting past the denials especially us men but then uh they're very simple techniques and we spend a lot of time with our techniques and testing them over the years to make them really simple so people can actually use them and get almost immediate benefit out of them but the techniques uh really allow you or give you there's about eight core techniques you know for very different purposes and, and things and most start with um, what's called heart-focused breathing. And that's where you put your focus of attention in the center of your heart, your chest, not necessarily the physical heart, but and pretend you're breathing through the chest area. And you breathe a little slower and deeper rhythm than normal. It's not some big exaggerated thing. But you're, and that focus of attention is really important in the heart area. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the beginning, you can try breathing in about a four or five seconds on the in-breath, four or five seconds on the out-breath which happens to be the resonant frequency. We actually have a resonant frequency uh, of the heart-brain cardiovascular system. Uh, so that's a 10-second rhythm, mm. the same as the coherent rhythm. So breathe, the heart-focused breathing helps shift the physiology into coherence. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone the, has access to their breath. You know, I, I love that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why breathing techniques are taught about everywhere from learning how to shoot better to, you know, mm-hmm. laws to yoga to education. Yep we have conscious access there although most people don't understand the mechanism of why they work so the breathing rhythm i won't go into all the mechanisms here but they modulate the rhythm of the heart so we're starting to shift the rhythm of the heart into that nice coherent wave i'm talking about and remember all this information going from the heart up to the brain mm-hmm. all the neural pathways so one of those pathways goes to the amygdalas which it then recognizes in a healthy brain as a familiar state that we associate with safety and comfort and everything's okay, right? So that creates a better feeling just by doing the breathing in a healthy brain. Mm -hmm. We're maladapted and we're anxiety or 
depression have become the familiar um, baseline, that can feel uncomfortable mm. at first because it's an unfamiliar rhythm. Um, but then next step in most of the techniques usually has to do with activating a feeling of gratitude or appreciation or a genuine connection you know, with someone dependent upon the technique. And, and that, but I'll, I won't, I'll stop there. So now by doing those in the moment, we're starting to get triggered. Now we stop the play out of those 1400 plus chemicals that biochemicals that deplete us and create a, a very different pattern of hormonal and neurochemicals that actually regenerate us. And those signals now go into the brain um, through a pathway which called to what's called the thalamus, which synchronizes literally the, the electrical activity of the entire brain. That coherent rhythm enhances its capacity to, to create global neural synchronization. So suddenly we can think clearer, make better decisions, we're more stable emotionally. Reaction times are, are increased. So we, you know, that's why athletes and law enforcement love our stuff so much. And we're, we're, uh, and this is an important point, uh, just to ramble on a little bit here, that what heart math isn't about this bad guy sympathetic nervous system. Because mm -hmm. it's not. We need a good, healthy sympathetic system. Or, and you have to relax, which is how most, a lot of stress management approaches are. Because no, there's a lot of times in life we actually need a higher heart rate. Mm -hmm. We're in athletics or sports or um, even in a meeting. Right, it's not about this kind of fluff muffin, you know, meditative. You know, there are times we really have to be on, you know, on, but we can be coherent or incoherent at any heart rate. So think of coherent rhythm equals inner composure and better mental acuity. So that's something we can learn to shift into right in the traffic jam or in the meeting when that person says that thing that you knew they were going to say, and then there we go, right? Um, and then. So when we're in an in incoherent state and we get triggered, we're feeling frustration or anger, whatever, those degenerate um, depleting emotions, that incoherent rhythm also goes to the thalamus, which is responsible. It's, it's one of its roles of synchronizing activity in the brain globally. That desynchronizes brain function. And that's when we typically say or do the stupid, the, the thing we later say, God, that was stupid. I can't believe I said that. Mm -hmm. Not, to, not Christine. Not that you can relate to that. I'm sure. Yeah, you, not yeah. at all. <laughs> 2020 has not given me any opportunities to, you know, um, experience incoherence at all. <laughs> so, does that make sense? So these are simple tools that you use yeah. in the moment. Yeah. To mm -hmm. self-regulate our emotional diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's um, almost, you know, when I, we see the patients that I see, you know, there's a complexity, right? We see these complex multi-systemic, you know, pathophysiologies and what you're explaining is a really simple, you know, tool. Yes, it takes discipline and you have to do it, but what you're, what I'm hearing is that we are wired and we have tools to really change our state no matter where we are in our life, which I think is a really empowering way to look at our health and our body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have to be a little bit careful here because I can sound like a you know minister or something, but there's so many um, examples now in case histories in healthcare of people that, you know, I've literally gotten out of wheelchairs, you know, over time and, and these types of things, um, you know, because as we learn to self-regulate and shift into more coherence, we're also connecting with the intelligence of the heart. That's a, the bigger benefit that I haven't really talked about. But if we just keep it at the biochemical, hormonal, nervous system level, we're stopping or, and, and this happens in ratios. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I learned a technique and suddenly I, you know, sure. it does take some practice. But with, with some practice over a few weeks, it becomes the new automatic as well because we're training the brain and nervous system into that new state as a familiar, right? But, but, but the point I'm making, wanting to make here, Christina, is that, as we start regulating those anxieties, impatience, and frustrations, drama, right? We're stopping the flood of the chemistry and the neural activity that's depleting us and interfering with the body's natural regenerative processes. So we're taking that burden off, that extra load, right? Right there is huge. Even if we could just go to neutral, not even go to, you know, maybe appreciation or compassion or kindness, just neutral is a huge step mm -hmm. for, for a lot of people. But then as we learn to go more to the more regenerative emotions as well, 
then we're, we're now creating the biochemistry of, regener of regeneration. Mm -hmm. So first thing you have to do is stop what's draining the system and now start adding energy. I kind of use the metaphor. It's a very good one, actually. I think if we think of a, we have an inner battery mm -hmm. you know, and we sleep and we recharge that inner battery. And that's one of the ways, but also coherence is charging the battery too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that once people understand that, and it's really true, we really are energy systems then just becoming more intelligent about how we choose to use our energy. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're doing it now because it, it makes sense to us, not because we, you know, somebody said we should, you know, a doctor or a guru or something, but uh, because of our own innate intelligence, it just makes sense. I want to use my, the bat, the energy I have in my inner battery more intelligently and be more conscious of how I keep it charged. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned sleep earlier too. And, and, uh, you know, thousands of studies now, well, not studies, but people in studies that uh, almost in every case, sleep has been one of the big improvements after people start using heart math. And, and for that, I mean, there, there can be things like apnea and stuff that are more neural-based, of course, but for the majority of people that have sleep problems, it's because of what went on during the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like we get triggered, even if it's unconscious, one of the, the kind of the top of the food chain of that 1400 plus biochemicals is cortisol, the stress hormone, which is also not a bad guy. We, we want healthy levels of cortisol. We just don't want to keep sh shocking the system with it inappropriately and unnecessarily. But the downstream effects of even a short burst of cortisol, because it regulates metabolism, as I'm sure you well know, those, those effects last for many hours. Mm -hmm. Cortisol actually modulates at the DNA level to express differently. So if we had those kind of episodes throughout today at where we're upping the metabolism, mm. then that carries over into sleep. We, you know, they got the racing mind. You can't go to sleep because the body's, you know, the chemistry of the body is ready to go use energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. And a lot of my you know, patients do struggle with insomnia. So I'm, I'm glad, you know, just like giving them things to downregulate cortisol or melatonin, they should have, you know, heart math seems like a really important tool to help with improving quality of sleep. And Dr. McCready, you went into the, you know, the intelligence of the heart that you want to maybe touch on, but before, and I, I really want to hear more of that, but before we shift out of this idea of regulation, and regulating emotions in our nervous system. There's a lot of talk in our community around the, the role of the vagus nerve and how the vagus nerve really, you know, is this switch between sympathetic and parasympathetic and all sorts of things yeah. can go awry. But I just, if, do you have any like comments or feedback on heart math and the vagus well, sure. nerve? Uh, I mean, we could do a whole hour on, yeah, on I that know. as well. <laughs> um, so, to give a little context here, when I've been talking about coherence and incoherence and heart rhythms, that is based on what's called heart rate variability, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. And everybody knows what heart rate is, you know, which is simply how many times did the heart beat in 60 seconds in a minute. And that's why we call it beats per minute. But in reality, in a healthy person, somebody who's resilient, uh, the heart rate changes with each and every heartbeat. This is always going on. There's hardly ever two heartbeats at the time between the two would be the same. Even when we're asleep, you know, quiet times, whatever. And this, the heart rate variability, there, there are many factors that go into creating heart rate variability. I won't, won't go into all that here, but one of those is the vagal, the activity in the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerves, of course, are very large nerves. There's thousands of fibers in each of the two vagus nerves. They come down through the front of the body. That's the longest nerve in the body. Um, 90% or 80, if we want to be conservative, but most suggest 90% of these fibers in the vagus are, are taking information from the body back to the brain. Only 10% is down. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of set the groundwork here. Because a lot of what in psychology, the vagus nerve is a really big thing. And the way you measure the activity in, in the vagus nerve is you look at how much heart rate variability you have. It's the rhythm of the heart. And in fact, when we breathe, what modulates the heart rhythm is that we change the activity patterns going down the vagus to the heart and body. Now, by the, by the way, most of those ascending or afferent, as we call them in neuroscience, pathways back to the brain come from the heart and cardiovascular system mm -hmm. by far. So that's why I say the two are mainly connected. So vagal activity 
which is the parasympathetic side of the nervous system. So the vagus is the primary nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system. Most people are talking about the 10%, the brain down. Mm -hmm. And yes, the, looking at vagal activity is really important because we know that people who have lower uh, HE heart rate variability, uh, it, that's what I would call vaguely mediated. It's one of only one of the things that mediate HRV. A lot of people get confused about that and think it's all about that. It's not. Let me be very clear. About 30% of HRV is due to vagal activity. Mm -hmm. And if that's lower than it should be, we I consider that, as many of my colleagues, a measure of what we call self-regulatory capacity. Mm -hmm. Now, Steve Forges, a friend of mine, uh, coined the term many years ago uh, about the vagus nerve to, to really say that it's the primary nerve that under, underlies what he calls the social engagement system. Because mm -hmm. the vagus is, you could think of the vagus and the activity coming down from that is the brakes. Like if we use a car analogy, you know, you see, you know, you've got to stop at a stop sign or somebody runs out in the road, you put the brakes on. It's what slows and stops. So when we have more vagal activity to the heart, it slows heart rate. As, mm -hmm. as opposed to the accelerator, which would be the sympathetic in our analogy here. So what he means by the social engagement system, um, just to riff a little bit here, if that's okay. Of course. You know, we, we have this fight flight thing that you know, got associated with the sympathetic nervous system back in the 1920s, Walter Cannon. And I think it's, it's really created a, uh, a misnomer like there's sympathetic's a bad guy that the only thing we can do is fight when we get activated is, you know, run away or fight. And in fact, I, in our, a lot of our training programs, we, I talk about the modern day evolution of fight or flight. It's a real response, but it's not like a lot of people think, but the whole point of the social engagement system, which is the parasympathetic through the vagus nerves is that we aren't limited to fight or flight to, to fight or flight. Like a lot of people led to believe we have the capacity to put the brakes on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. We might not disagree on something, Christine, but we, but we can agree. We can put the brakes on and say, well, let's, let's at least hear what each other's perspective is. Even though I, don't, even though I may not agree, I don't have to hit you or run away from you or separate from you. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the social engagement system, mm -hmm. which is the Vegas. And so the way we literally measure the health of that is how much vaguely mediated heart rate variability there is. This is throughout the field of psychophysiology. So that's why there's so much importance around vagal activity. But the thing we have to remember is what's creating that activity in this downward branch of the vagus is what's going on above it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the wire, a very complex wire, but, or the highway, right? The, the freeway with multiple pathways going both ways. But it's really what's happening in our, in our especially our emotions and our amygdala that's driving that activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So when we get incoherent, which is vaguely mediated, a lot of that jerky heart rhythm stuff, it's because the brain centers above it are out of sync. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So just oh, to yeah. riff yeah. on that a little bit. So. Yeah, no, thank you. And I um, love the work of Dr. Porges as well. And I'm glad that we, it sounds like you guys, I'm sure, have had many conversations uh, around this topic. The other thing you asked me, so when we get in a heart coherent state, yep we're actually increasing vagal activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you, and you actually see that in an increased range of the HRV while we're doing those practices. Mm -hmm. right. Now, the other part of that, though, is because most people are only talking about the vagus to 10%, yep. the 90% is way more important because now we're shifting the, the quality, use the word quality of those neural signals coming up the vagus. Mm -hmm. And that's what will help um, slow or excuse me, mediate sympathetic outflow is what's actually coming up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, um, when I've talked about it, I've said 80%. So I didn't realize it was 90% or, or you know, it's from the, from the body up to the brain, you know, so that's, you know, we have, it sounds like heart math has the two aspects, right? We can influence the top down and then we can also influence, you know, the heart via the vagus to the brain. So there's these two aspects of. Um, uh, and I, I actually put more emphasis on the bottom up. Yep. <laughs> and of course, they're both important, but and the one of the reasons for that, one of my mentors, um, this guy named Carl Prebrum, uh, you might you you may know the name, a lot of people won't. Mm -hmm. um, a pretty famous guy, and he's considered by many the uh, father of modern cognitive neuroscience. Mm -hmm. 
and um, one of uh, so he's one of the he's, he a lot of things he did that people aren't aware of because of the way we reference things these days that only back so many years but things like executive functions for the frontal cortex he's a guy who coined the term executive functions and um, well actually one of the literally one of the first uh, brain surgeons ever in the world wow and so grew up through knowing nothing about the brain to being one of the, the top experts in by far in the world anyway one of uh, his, his passion was uh, i knew him quite well but was to, the study of emotions how is it that we feel and what why are they and the motivations they create and, and all this and many of the theories of emotion now are all based on his theories literally um but what here's the, the i'll try and say this as simply as i can uh if we look at the amygdalas you know which one of the things that used to drive him crazy was a new book or a paper would come out talking about the amygdalas the fear center or something you know, and he would just throw them in the trash can because they have it all wrong. But what the amygdala does is determine what is familiar and not familiar. That's mm. what its role is. So to do that, it has to have a reference that we're comparing the now to. So in fact, now, if we talk about these afferents coming up from the heart, I'll use this, they, they go directly to the amygdala. In fact, the, in the core nucleus of the amygdala, the cells are literally synchronized to the heartbeat. Oh, wow. So whatever the, I mean, you can watch them fire milliseconds later after every heartbeat, boom, boom, boom. So whatever the heart rhythm pattern is, is going directly to the core of the amygdala. Oh. Now, one part of the amygdala is where it, you, through these kind of neural patterns, you store what he, he called familiar baseline references. So um, I'll give you an example. I had one of my grandmothers when I was a little kid. In her world, she worried all the time. Worry, 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 anxiety drove us crazy. But in her world, that was her way of care. That was what she equated with caring. She was caring about it because she was worried about us. Mm -hmm. So that had become her familiar baseline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what the amygdala does is always comparing, now looking for a match between the familiar and the current input. And a match equals comfort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is what we would call now these days a maladapted baseline. Mm -hmm. The person who's always quick to trigger anger or anxiety or these types of things, that's become their baseline. So there, there is no such thing as sustained change in terms of our behaviors, our emotion, and our emotional experience without resetting that baseline, those many, many baselines that we form over a lifetime. Now, what Carl, Dr. Priebman proved, absolutely proved, was that the only way that you can reset or establish or reset a baseline is to change the afferent information coming from the body to the amygdala. Mm. You cannot think yourself into a new baseline, at least not yeah. directly. You mm. have to change the afferents, the ascending neural information, especially from the heart. And he actually talked about this in 1970 in very elegant ways. So the heart being the primary source of rhythm is what is the primary source of establishing the familiar which the whole organism then jumps off from. So everything we experience and perceive goes through this pattern recognition process at this level. Mm -hmm. So that's why the, the information, bottom-up information is so critical and why it's so the, the, especially in trauma work in, in the uh, somatic type approaches are becoming so much more popular. And, and over time we realize that you, you know, a lot of the brain focused, you know, you can't think yourself into a new baseline. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, he, this is actually proven. This is not some theory. Right. Um, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's uh, fascinating. And uh, some of my patients have done what we call limbic retraining to sure. their um, programs. Mm -hmm. Annie Hopper has one, Dr. Gupta, and typically, you know, patients who are highly sensitive, right? So they often are chemically sensitive or mold sensitive. And they, you know, the premise of this is how do we kind of rewire their safety mechanisms so they're less react. I mean, the whole goal is for them to not react so strongly to their environment. But I hadn't thought about it in this way that we can really change the amygdala through changing you know, the heart, right? Or creating more coherence yeah. generated from the heart. Yeah, I'm going to take it one step farther. It's, yeah. the, it's the only way you can do it. <laughs> Done, check. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah. So like these simple little techniques like heart-focused breathing, mm -hmm. right? We think we're changing the brain down and we are, but it's the stuff coming back up 
directly right. into the amygdala. And we do that enough times, or especially over the first few weeks, you're literally training the amygdala to that rhythm being the new inner reference that which it's comparing to. And once that's established as the new reference, that's when this work becomes transformational because mm -hmm. now it becomes the new automatic. You don't have to think about, you know, mm -hmm. and people find themselves becoming more uh, relaxed, kind of casual, um, kinder, uh, just kind of naturally without ever thinking they're trying to do that because that is the natural um, association with a, a coherent rhythm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, no, and this is awesome info. And a lot of people who are listening out there are probably curious, like, have you, do you have experience in your research and studies working with these types of patients, like the really sensitive, the highly sensitive to their Oh, yeah, treatment? sure. And, sure. Um, you know, what would you say to those patients listening? Like how long have, is on average that you see that? Um, yeah, on, 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 on average, and this, there's a lot of variation here. Honestly, sure, of course. It's about six weeks of practice okay. that, that you start, which is, seems like a long time, but no, that's short. If you mad, if you think of lifetimes of being stuck in an old pattern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and so heart has been used a lot Um in trauma work in fact we're like i mentioned earlier we're developing uh, before we, the call we were we're actually creating a new certification course in trauma work for for people who want to integrate trauma i mean integrate heart math approaches in, into their trauma work and this is one of the what inspired us to go ahead and do that was um work that was being done in syria with refugees mm -hmm. with syrian refugees in lebanon actually and the the fellow who was doing that had been done a lot of i mean it, it has spent his life on, on humanitarian efforts and trauma work and and the a lot of these refugees were children obviously and i think he worked with over 800 children and their primary symptom uh of how the stress of all that was playing out was bedwetting mm. and of course that's not a good thing if you're in a refugee camp they don't have washers and dryers and you know crowded lots of people and crowded into these tents and things and he, he was able to get, I forget the exact number, but it was in the high, high 80% resolution of those symptoms in a very short period. Wow. Uh, to basically teaching them some very, actually he based his program on our program for kindergarten and first grade students, oh. called Heart Smarts. Uh, very simple techniques for these kids. And then, then he reinforced it by teaching the mothers. Um, so what was powerful about that was not only that it worked, it's such a high ratio, but how fast it worked. But then he also had a, a much a more complex and in-depth program for survivors of trauma. I mean, survivors of, yes, trauma, but torture. Mm. Um, and again, very fast resolution. I mean, it was weeks, not days, like with the children, but still. And um, anyway, that's what we, we finally said, so okay, we got to get off our behind, so to speak, and go ahead and get this out to others. Of how, but, um, so the, the, the course we're doing, it's a, it's, a, it's a great course. I've been watching the episodes. Um, a lot of trauma-informed experts are talking about their how they've integrated heart math into their work with trauma, and you know Dan Siegel and a bunch of people like that are all all mm -hmm. show up in our course, and you know some some great yeah. things to say, So yeah, no, I will definitely check that out, and I know that so many people who are listening, you know, we all want more tools, right, to help people. We know, um, especially practitioners who treat um, the patient population I seek, know that trauma has a huge factor in regulation, but how to guide people and how to give them a really meaningful yeah, so, so in that course we go into a lot of the things with with the oversensitive in fact we we did some studies you at you mentioned uh chemical sensitivity earlier uh many years ago um, probably the late 90s we did some research with a a clinic up in canada in nova nova scotia actually that specializes in patients with uh, environmental sensitivity disorder mm. and in fact it's the only at that time it was the only population we had ever seen that we would say had too much heart rate variability because mm. it's almost always about too low of HRV. However, when you looked at the HRV, the actual rhythms and patterns of it, it was not normal. They had a lot of it. It almost looked like an arrhythmia, but it mm -hmm. wasn't. Mm -hmm. And what we, I sort of informally called this state uh, was vagal, vagal system chaos. Mm. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's, you're not going to see, it's, it's rare, but if you do see people with chemical or, or certain environmental sensitivities, a pretty good ratio of them actually have this nervous system chaos disorder. So we get hit with the, the stimulant, you know, um, 
the chemical or the whatever it is. And that triggers the system. It can't, you know, this is a level of failure of physiological self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ultimately what it is, the system gets, goes into a, a, this chaotic state and it doesn't have, the, it's lost the capacity to self-regulate it. Mm-hmm. So the, the, a small stimulus creates a very big outplay. Um, and that we've now started to see the same pattern in, uh, and this was when years went by, we, we do a 24 hour HRV analysis for clinics all over the world, uh, especially functional medicine clinics that we just sort of seem to resonate with. Then we've started to see this, this same pattern show up uh, now and then in patients uh, coming to the clinic and uh, not always, but almost always they're, they're coming because they're of anxiety never had any problem with anxiety and suddenly they're, they're feeling this overwhelming anxiety slash panic. They have no idea why. And what we see though, is that what most likely what's going on is they've developed an environmental sensitivity disorder. It's triggering the system into this chaotic rhythm, which actually looks almost like extreme anxiety when somebody's having that emotional state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? But in this case, it's physiological. So you have that rhythm whew, going up to the brain. It cannot bring it back into a, a normal rhythm. To the, to the familiar. So that spins up into chaos, into anxiety and panic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they really have is probably a mold allergy or some and, type and of yeah, that mold does that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But see, so it's triggering the, the, the system and they've been exposed to it long enough. It's kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the, the clinic we worked with most, the majority of their patients are farm workers who worked for year, years and years with chemicals and sprays. And, and then suddenly the system got overwhelmed to a point and now it become hypersensitive to the same thing that they, you know, didn't have any problem with for, for many years. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that helps you or not, but we're using. Oh yeah, no, that's fascinating. And you know, it's what I, you're speaking the language that, you know, we all, you know, are seeing and it's just yeah. great to have this but other tool because it, it can yeah. be really heartbreaking to see these patients yeah. as, like, like they can't break the cycle or pattern. And so, Bans yeah. were talking about this completely independent of the environmental sensitivity studies. Uh, I've got to forget how long it was now. I used to say a couple of years ago, but I'm getting to be an old fart and it's mm-hmm. much longer than that now. But uh, there was a study of anxiety, anxiety slash panic disorder patients. And I forget all the reasons why, but they did 24 hour uh, halter recordings, ECG recordings on them uh, for some other reason. I forget what it was now. And a very unexpected finding came out of it. What they found was that in, I think 50th, don't take me to jail if I get the numbers exactly right, but it's going to be close to this. 55% of those patients with anxiety actually had undiagnosed atrial arrhythmias, sudden onset atrial arrhythmias. Mm. Wow. 55%. Wow. Treat the arrhythmia. Guess what? no more anxiety. Yeah. So wow. in this case, you have, in fact, if you plot arrhythmias, mm-hmm. as they look very close to what, what somebody, the heart rhythm pattern of somebody who's actually experiencing anxiety mm-hmm. that got triggered, it's actually brain generated anxiety. In this case, it was the heart going into these atrial fibrillations, these arrhythmias, sending that pattern to the brain, mm-hmm. which it interprets. I can't bring it back to mass because it's an arrhythmia. Right, mm-hmm. so right back into the feeling of anxiety. So probably half of the patients getting taking medications for anxiety disorder actually have a heart problem. Yeah, that, that my wheels are turning with all of that because we look at the brain, right? We look at, yeah. of course, trauma, emotions, but we look at the brain and where the brain is inflamed and where the brain might not be producing um, neurotransmitters in this um, and that, but it, it could be the heart. And a lot of what we see, you know, the heart, it has a huge role. Like when we look at um, viral infections or even Lyme or, you know, as you said, mold or even le- these things can affect um, the actual physical heart as well as blood flow and circulation. And so, yeah, no, my, my wheels are turning kind of thinking about this in so many different ways. Um, you know, that, that's fascinating. Uh, fascinating. Well, mm-hmm. keep in mind the heart has a, its own intrinsic nervous system. Right. Mm-hmm. That is a very complex neural system. In fact, it's nicknamed from, from, not from me, but from the neurocardiology community, the heart brain. Right. This is not a metaphor. They mean this literally. Yeah. So there's a very complex neural structure in the heart itself. Mm-hmm. That's where all these heart-brain communications originate from. Mm-hmm. So there, there's neural structures there too that can be affected by 
Anyway, that's a whole other topic. And, yeah, I know, I know. I, I could keep you here all day, Roland. You know? I think we've probably already gone over the amount of time we, we uh, said. We were yeah, I know, I know. Um, just one quick logistical yeah. question as we wrap up. So how long do people have to practice heart math a day um, when you're- Well, okay. Uh, there's two, uh, two answers to that. One is I would actually recommend that they get one of our HR heart rhythm feedback devices. Yep. which actually feeds back your heart rhythm in real time and tells you how coherent it is as they practice some of the skills and techniques. Mm-hmm. And in, in the first weeks, it's not, doesn't have to be a lifetime thing, right? But although some people do, uh, I would recommend practicing, get, practice shifting into coherence mm-hmm. and, and practice sustaining it for longer periods for say maybe five minutes twice a day. First thing in the morning, because you're, really you're really stabilizing the nervous system before you go out into the world and go about your day. And then at night before you go to bed. So you stabilize the system before going to sleep. Now, mm-hmm. what you're doing there is you're training the nervous system and the brain into the new familiar I've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that's one part, part one. Part two is you start practicing remembering to use the techniques that you've learned in the moment during the day. Mm-hmm. Now, for some people that, you know, I've heard of, God, I, that's all I did all day long, right? Because they're getting triggered so much, but that's great. You know, other people, it may be not so often, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's why there's a variation on that. But those two things in combination, the training the nervous system through the feedback and then remembering to practice. And that's the hardest part for people. Yeah. As soon as we get triggered, all that cortical stuff gets inhibited and we forget we even learned a skill, Mm -hmm. let alone to use it. So we have to do reminders. And and that's where having someone like you or a health coach or somebody that helps hold us accountable is really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. awesome awesome well dr mccready i could literally talk to you all day and so i really appreciate all that you shared and your expertise and all the research that you've done and if people want to find out more about the course you just mentioned or how to get a device or any of that good stuff where should people go heartmath.org easy Easy. And I've, um, I've, you know, definitely referenced your website a lot um, and some of the talks that I've done and you guys do a, such a great job of laying all the information out there and you all are busy. You'll never get bored, right? <laughs> and we, ha- we have lots of books, you know, in yeah. very inexpensive ways. If you wanted to get a coach or a mentor to help guide you through the process, there's directories that we, you can find one in your area. There's 10,000 certified heart math trainers out there around the world now. And uh, a lot of many thousands, many thousands of healthcare professionals have gone through our healthcare professional certification. Like a lot of those are probably listed on the, the directory mm-hmm. as well. And uh, mm-hmm. and if you if you're into the science, I would recommend uh, a book called um, Science of the Heart, Volume Two. And it's written about a, a you know where I, I go into the studies on intuition and global coherence and and uh, it's a fairly it's a science book. But it's a pretty easy read. And then if you really want to learn more about the techniques and those types of things, our latest book, I would recommend it would be Heart Intelligence. Uh, would be awesome. a good, good choice. We'll put that all in the show notes. And I um, I can't thank you enough for your time and your expertise in sharing this knowledge today. And you all have created quite the movement. So thank you. The world really needs this right now. So thank you for what you're sharing and putting out into the world. Thank you. Thank you for helping uh, share this with your audience, Christine. Thank you. All right. Have a great day.